Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. Kara Wilde, whose case we covered earlier this fall, has been released from prison in France. Congratulations, Kara. A link to her release fundraiser can be found on freekarawild.org. Michael Kimball, an Alabama prison rebel and anarchist, has managed to release the following short report on work strikes in his facility. He writes, On the evening of Friday, October 3, 2017, prisoners at Holman Prison in Alabama began a work strike in protest to the suspension of weekend family visitation, the continued and ongoing harassment by Alabama Department of Corrections CERT riot squad against prisoners, including physical assaults on prisoners, arbitrary shakedowns, and the total disrespect CERT members showed toward prisoners. The CERT had been assigned to Holman in October of 2016 after rebellious prisoners staged a number of work strikes, riots, and the stabbings of Warden Carter Davenport, Corrections Officer Tate, and the killing of Corrections Officer Bettis. The work strike length is indefinite. Pass the word on and express your solidarity with the prison rebels held captive at Holman by demonstrating in direct action. Unquote. A transgender prisoner who identifies as female is suing the Indiana Department of Correction for denying her request for hormone therapy. The inmate, Anthony Loveday, asserts that the denial constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. Loveday was diagnosed with gender dysphoria two years ago. Because of the hormone therapy denial, Loveday said she experiences anxiety, depression, and suicidal thoughts. Loveday had been seeing a mental health professional about twice a month for talk therapy, but formally requested hormone therapy. Loveday is represented legally by the ACLU of Indiana. Its lawsuit says the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution prohibits the government, quote, from remaining deliberately indifferent to the serious medical needs of an inmate, unquote. The Department of Corrections policy is to provide hormone therapy only to inmates who receive such treatments before their incarceration. McCormick Prison in South Carolina, the site of several struggles over the past year, recently placed its prisoners on a ration of a single cup of water a day. This dangerous policy has led to a storm of protests and complaints by captives there. 86% of women who have been in jail report that they're survivors of sexual assault. That's a major conclusion of a new study by the Vera Institute of Justice, as reported in Alternet. 77% of women surveyed had experienced partner violence, and 60% had experienced caregiver violence. Further, though women constituted only 13% of the jail population between 2009 and 2011, they made up 67% of survivors of sexual violence by jail staff. Two-thirds of women in jail are of color, and the majority of them are poor. Nearly 80% of incarcerated women are mothers, and most of them are raising children without a partner. 82% went to jail for nonviolent offenses, and that same percentage are addicted to drugs or alcohol. 32% have serious mental illness. The study also found that many women are in pretrial detention because they can't afford bail amounts of less than $500. The state of Ohio failed to execute Alba Campbell, a 69-year-old prisoner housed at Lucasville. After almost an hour and a half of mishaps, guards failed to find a suitable vein for lethal injection. This is the second botched lethal injection in Ohio in the past decade. 
Campbell's execution has been rescheduled to June 5, 2019. This week, we focus on an ongoing struggle here in Indiana. In Wabash Valley, Shaka Shakur is maintaining his hunger strike, demanding an end to guard abuses and the isolation of active prisoners in camera cells. We spoke with his wife, Akili Shakur, who provided context for the struggle undertaken by Shaka and other prisoners, along with the background on his imprisonment and the role of guards in targeting prisoners and stoking conflict. She also explains the importance of the hunger strike as a tool for prisoners to fight for their dignity and survival. I'm Akili Shakur. I'm the wife of Shaka Shakur that's being housed at Wabash Valley Correctional Facility. I work with military students and I work in the community trying to help give individuals who may not have the means to be exposed to things to help them be successful and make great choices in life. Shaka's my husband. We've been married going on 17 years. He's been locked up 16 years. (laughs) I know that sounds kind of strange, but the circumstances by which he's incarcerated um, is basically the reason for his incarceration. Right after we got married, Shaka had a son previously to us getting married, and his son was murdered, and that caused Shaka to have a nervous breakdown. His son's mother and and Shaka, when he was killed, he was killed on Shaka's birthday. And that was horrific in and of itself. I I was at a conference when I got the call. And so I flew back immediately. I found Shaka just completely, just a total mess. His son was, he'd seen his son lying on the streets with his body not moving. The police were not being um, very responsive to the fact that that's my son that's there and he wasn't allowed to even get close to him. Then the young man that murdered him was on the run for a while and, you know, word would go out in the neighborhood when the young man would come back around and Shaka and his son's mother would try and contact the police to let them know and they were acting as if the both of them were just really getting on their nerves. They weren't in a hurry to arrest them because word on the streets was that the little boy was connected to his father with the police. Long story short, Shaka had a complete nervous breakdown. He was he was taking a friend home and I didn't see him anymore until I found out the next day that he had been arrested. He had been drinking and I think he slid on some ice or something into a pole. And a police officer arrived and Shaka got out the car, showed him the weapon. And then he just, uh, when the police officer got out the car, he just started shooting the car up. And we've been fighting this ever since the last 17 years. Shaka has been locked up and they basically had him in the supermax facility based off of previous incarceration. And he was doing very, very well until he got sent to uh, Wabash Correctional Facility because there were supposed to be programs that would allow you to work your way into uh, population. And he had completed the one at Westville. Uh, no problem, got through it, no write-ups, eight years, no write-ups. And they sent him back to Wabash where there's always been a problem. That facility is about almost 300 miles away from us. And it sits in a small 
small town, the basic, where the biggest economy is going to be the prison and uh, Walmart. And you've got individuals who have never been in, in power or in control of anything working there. And they have a tendency to take out their racial biases on individuals who don't look like them because there are basically no blacks that stay around that area. Well, they have an officer there named Foster, and she's, I don't know how long she's been working there, but she has this reputation of um, being lazy, number one, and she does. She has a tendency to like to talk a lot about who she knows. She's part of MS-13, and when she doesn't want to let guys go out to wreck, she finds a reason to uh, deny them wreck and to write them up if they complain about it. And Shaka got caught up in the complaint about uh, her not doing her job. And so she got upset, and she has been harassing him off and on ever since. He says that she has taken private information from his mail, just distributed throughout the facility, the shoe over there, because he writes up, uh, he writes her up. She has tried to label him as a snitch, putting his life in danger. She has gotten her, it's a little crew of them, it's about four of them that really hang together. She's gotten them to harass him. They stand outside his cell, make threats, play with the trays. It's, it's, it's already unsanitary. And re- in the last, I have say the last couple of months, Shaka has found spittle in his food. He's found trash in his food. He has had them standing outside his cell talking about what would happen if he was on the streets because this foster person says she's part of the MS-13. She's got connections, and they even went so far as to put a letter in his mailbag, allow somebody to put a letter, uh, a note in his mailbag, which is really weird because he's on lockup, and he's not supposed to have any contact with anybody that said that I had died. So I got a phone call from the prison trying to verify if I was dead or not. They bring his family into the issues that are going on there, so I had to clear that up. So then we began the calling to find out why is this person being allowed to work on this facility. She's not professional. She's bringing her personal issues there. We did some background check and find out that, that you know, perhaps she needs to be drug tested because it's it's alleged that she be, she indulges in some behaviors that are not conducive to professionalism. Notice I said alleged. I don't know for sure, but in regards to how she responds to her job, she is overzealous, and she seems to think that if she doesn't feel like letting people go to wreck, they should be happy with it, and she can talk to people any kind of way. She's stood outside the cell, made threats, talked about what goes, what she she feels goes on in his personal life through reading his letters and stuff. They played with the mail. He wasn't getting mail. They were shipping books and things back. Anything that had anything to do with ethnicity or racial history that's a positive, they weren't letting that in. They were only letting in certain groups of people could get any kind of magazines, mail, letters. If you were Aryan Nation or or the clan type, that information was being let in. But uh, anything that had to do with any information that goes on about positive issues in black and Latino communities, they were having a problem with. Uh, he would call home 
and I accept phone calls. In the middle of a phone call, they just cut it off, which means you got to pay more money. We have to dial up, and you accept it again. Uh, just all all types of little things. I send them a letter. It takes it about ten days to get there. When really, it should take no more than four at the most. If it's not a holiday, like I said, you can't go to wreck. You've got people standing outside your cell talking about issues that should not be talked about, engaging in conversations with other inmates in regards to what she thinks or what they think about those individuals who don't go along with the program. So they're stirring up racism and division, and nobody seems to care. When you call and talk about it, You know, it's always the same thing. We're going to look into it. And yet nobody ever comes back and says that they've resolved the issue. Instead of uh, taking those people off that unit or putting them somewhere where it's not going to be as blatantly openly biased, they leave them there. And it came to a head about maybe a month and a half ago when he and an officer got into an altercation which is amazing because he's supposed to be shackled where you can't move. They shackle feet and and hands, but mysteriously, the cuffs were supposed to be loosened. And, you know, an officer got into it. And now they've got him on on uh, camera cell. They're spitting in his food. He's seeing trays with globs of spit on the bread. They stand outside the cell and say, how do you like that meal? Tell me what it tastes like. Uh, he still mess with the mail. Every chance they get to, well, you can't even use the phone now because um, they gave him a hearing on the inside and they were taking eight years of good time from him. They also were talking about giving him an outside case. They illegally uh, took his time away from him. They will not produce any of the material that has been asked for in regards to proving um, the allegations for which they're charging him. And so it's just been one nightmare after the other and was consistently calling and asking questions and we get the same answers. We're looking into it. So that's what we're fighting now. We're fighting the unjust railroading of him into court without an attorney without uh, any evidence that he is asked to have produced. There's no uh, video to state his side of what transpired. They're just going by what was said by the officer. And like I said, it all started with this one officer named Foster, and this whole situation has blown into this huge nightmare. When you get a write-up, then you have to go before the uh, interior, what they call, what we call the Volcano Court. And what they do is they're supposed to hear hear your your side after the write-up has been filed. And, and during that write-up, once they got through with it, they told him that oh, he asked he was asking for various footage of film to be to be um, produced, and he was asking for witness statements that should have been taken when they were doing the internal investigation, and they wouldn't produce any of that. They took him into um, his hearing, and they told him that they automatically found him guilty of uh, infraction and altercation with an officer, and that he was going to lose phone privileges, I think, for about a year, and they were they were going to take away eight years of good time. And I've never known a facility to have 
rights to take away good time without it going into an outside court. Since the facility has nothing to do with the amount of time that a person is sentenced, and especially when you will not produce anything or and you have not asked any witnesses, you've not done anything but taken the word of, of one side over the other, not looking to see if there was anything that led to the altercation, what was that person doing in the first place, how does he get a chance to be in a position where it gets to be a physical confrontation? That's, that's the part that's, that's absolutely unacceptable. That guard is still on his unit. He is put in for an emergency transfer. And, and you know, what I want people to know is that uh, I don't know around the country if they're using a softer, gentler way of saying supermax, but anytime you hear the name of the shoe, security housing units, those are supermax prison facilities. And the way that they treat individuals in there is 23 to 24 hours of lockdown. There is no movement. There is no contact visit. There is none of that. So for a person to be transferred from one cell to another, they would have to be shackled by the hand. They would be shackled around the waist down to the feet. So when they do all of this, how is it possible that out of nowhere an individual ends up in a physical altercation with someone and the person that they had the confrontation with, I think he's been there. He's been working there for probably about 15, 20 years. And he consistently goes around saying he wishes it was the good old days back when they could take somebody behind the um, building and they would handle their business in regards to beating up on inmates. And he does this consistently. He's got that little foster lady who is a friend of his. There always is. It's not just my husband that the complaints have come in from. It's been from other inmates about the manner in which they conduct themselves. And then for that to happen, and then they put those individuals right back there on the unit, put them in the unit where those people are working, or they're working on the unit where he's housed. You're setting my husband up for retaliation. And so... Out of retaliation, that's where the spitting in the food, the putting things in mailbags saying that your wife is dead, you have a family killed, all this craziness. When a person is locked up in a supermax prison and they don't have access to being able to find out when threats like this go out immediately, that in and of itself is enough to drive somebody insane. And I'm just, I'm just over it. I call down there and... Every time you call, they treat you real nice on the phone, and they tell you the same thing that we're checking into it. It's always checking into it. Even before the altercation, I've made phone calls to state that this individual and what she was doing and the individuals with her, they never, they're going to look into it. So when it comes to a head, it blows up. Now, all of a sudden, he's the only one that they're blaming for anything without looking at, there's been complaints placed on these people prior to whatever it is that happened. Yeah, this hunger strike is about the basic conditions of which they're being housed and how individuals are treating inmates there. Him, but not only just him, but there are others too. They've got people who have been in altercations with employees there, and they randomly decide who gets all of um, the camera lockup cells and who gets a chance to go back into regular cells where they can have TV and they can at least order off the commissary. You have very little privileges as it is. And they do it at randomly, and they make statements 
consistently about, you know, you're going to die back here. You're never going to, no, nobody's going to ever get you out of here. So him and another inmate decided they were going to do a hunger strike because they want to bring attention to the overall condition by which they're running that, that supermax. Because every time, everybody inside covers for everybody else. They don't take it outside. So the world doesn't know that they are actually not abiding by their rules and regulations. They're writing them up as they go. Everything is arbitrary. Just depend on how many people they have working that day or who feels like doing what. And that, that should be looked into and that should be corrected. And individuals who have not followed policy should not be working there. They basically get, I believe it's like 1,200 calories worth of, of uh, garbage. You know, whatever it is they had uh, that they made and they have anything left over, they take it and make it into casseroles and suits. They don't allow them to really order enough healthy things off of a commissary to supplement that. They don't care about how they serve your food. Your tray could be dirty. It could be, like I said, they're spitting in your food. If they don't like you, they find all types of ways to uh, mess with you mentally and physically in regards to what they call food that they're serving. They don't give you your wreck the way you're supposed to. They'll always have an excuse. Well, today we're short. Uh, you know, well, um, we don't have somebody to do this or any other, or the next the next shift was supposed to do it, and it doesn't matter if you're short. That's not the part. That's not the inmate's responsibility to make sure you have enough people that are working. And so, whenever they have an issue, then they just take it out on the inmates. Now, it's not every got every officer there. There are just a certain group that decides what days they feel like working and what days they don't. And so. On those days that they don't feel like working, this is how they get out of it. Find a way to keep everybody locked down in their cells. Their health care is, it used to be through Corizon, they have a new health care carrier. And they said that they're supposed to get the minimum amounts of medical care, I guess, which is basically just to keep you alive. But you never really see the same person, and if you do, there's no follow-up in regards to your the, the medical condition. My husband has problems, nerve problems, and his arm, and he's had kidney disease. And when he complains about it, it may take him about two weeks before he'll be able to see a doctor. Then he doesn't get any results from them. He has to try and figure out exactly what's going on in order for them to even acknowledge. You, you ask for copies of your medical papers. It takes forever for you to get that. They don't seem to to care. They're making you pay for it anyway. You still have to pay out of your commissary in order to see the doctor. And then you have to go on the waiting list in order to see the person. And when you don't see the person, you see the nurses, and the nurses never know what's written in your medical records. You ask about something that was supposed to be prescribed for you the last time you saw the doctor. You never got it. The nurse has no idea about it. Then it takes another 10 days to try and track down whether or not that order was put in. It's just ridiculous. To resolve the issue, it would be, I would like to see them follow policy. 
I would like them to take on a more professional demeanor about carrying out their jobs. They're not the judge. They're not the jury. They don't know what has happened. They don't know mitigating circumstances. They're there to make sure that the person does not harm themselves or anyone else. But if they don't stir the pot to get people divided, then it would be a lot better. They need to have some outdates for people that are on these lock-up units. They should not be locked up 23 to 24 hours a day forever. If you go in, there should be an outdate. It should not be well. And and they always say, well, it's coming from downstate. So it's not just the facility. They're blaming it on the commissioner. And the commissioner should take away his personal feelings about anything and everybody and look at the the activities and the behavior of the individuals that they're putting behind over in these shoes. They should not have arbitrary letting people off because, you know, you happen to like this person and other people because they don't indulge you on the days you're having a bad day that you find a reason to keep them locked up. They need educational programs. They need to have something that they can do that's benefiting them, not only while they're in there, but for the future. Everybody that goes in is not going to be there forever. And when they come back out, if they've not been treated as humans, then they put all of us at risk because if you treat me like a dog, then why would you expect for me to behave anything differently once I'm released? They have these rules for a reason, and yet they never follow them. And when you ask them, when you write them up, or when they're written up about the rules that they're not following, there's no consequences to the individuals that work there because they claim they're shorthanded and they can't afford for people to quit. Well, maybe if they figure out what it is that people are so dissatisfied with that they would stoop to this behavior of treating people like animals and solve that issue, things inside the prison would go a lot smoother. representatives, they should call the governor's office, they should call the commissioner's office, they should call the warden's office, they should just call, write letters, ask questions. Why is this happening? What are you doing about it? Who is the person in charge of making that decision? And then let them know, you know, especially the governor, you you hired these people, or these people are in your employ, and this is what they're doing, so that must be a reflection of your values about human life with people behind the wall because one never knows when it might be your turn to go in and if we look at our current political situation people are getting ready to go to jail left and right but those are the same people that would have been waving the flag waving the flag to bury them alive behind these walls and unless the public gets involved to know what's going on and how people are, are being treated that we need to push that there needs to be some rehabilitation and make that the factor instead of just straight punishment. Because punishment does not get anything but violence afterwards. If they want to write to Shaka, his DOC number is 135647. And he's at the Wabash Valley Correctional Facility, Carlisle, Indiana. They can find that on the website. If they have complaints in the Indiana area, uh, the state of Indiana, we have a group uh, saving our families, and we're trying to get as many people who have issues with how their loved ones are being treated uh, inside these facilities to write us at Saving Our Families, 201 West Ridge Road, 
Gary, Indiana. And let us know because we need we need to have as many letters of, of, of abuse to prove that this place is not operating the way it's supposed to and that oh also that we want to be made aware if they're talking about shipping uh Indiana citizens out of Indiana into private prisons in other states because that's the um the new word on the streets that they want to do. And we pay taxes in Indiana. We don't pay taxes somewhere else. And nobody should be shipped. This is not a federal prison. They should not be shipped into a private prison who's going to be making a profit out of keeping people locked up in even worse condition. Updates on the movement at Wabash Valley and Shaka's hunger strike can be found at idocwatch.org. IDOC Watch reports that there is a request to call in and support the prisoners' protest. IDOC Commissioner Robert Carter can be reached at 317-232-5711 in case you choose to call. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box. KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at kitelineradio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512 or you can use this number to record a message to a loved one behind bars. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.